Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shri Gurbani. Our special focus on rare diseases continues today with a look at a one in a million immune disorder called hyper-IgM syndrome, which compromises the body's ability to produce responses to pathogens such as bacteria and viruses. Most people with the condition will die before they reach their 30s. Our guest today, Akiva Zablocki, learned all of this the hard way when his infant son, Idan, was diagnosed with X-linked hyper-IgM, also called CD40 ligand deficiency, in 2013. Thanks to the love and persistence of Akiva and his wife, Amanda, Idan has received multiple treatments and is now 10 years old and quite healthy. In order to help other patients and family members fight this rare disorder, the Zablockis founded the Hyper-IgM Foundation in 2015 to improve the treatment, quality of life, and the long-term outlook for children and adults living with Hyper-IgM through research, support, education, and advocacy. And the way I got connected to Akiva was uh, the Hyper-IgM Foundation actually posted the osmosis video in the condition, and I reached out to him, and he was very happy to give us productive feedback on the video, which we edited with him and his colleagues' input. Uh, and he's been great at connecting us to other rare disease groups, including an original connection to the National Organization for Rare Disorders. So, Akiva, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Now, by the time your son was born, you were pretty familiar with the healthcare space, having worked as a consultant to Fortune 500 companies on their health and wellness plans. And you had earned a master's degree in public health from Columbia. Uh, what led to your interest in healthcare in the beginning? That's a great question. Looking at my background before I switched over to health, there was no indication that I was going to go into healthcare. Um, but back when I was in college, I was an economics and philosophy major at Columbia. I had been making plans to go work in finance. Um, and the summer before my senior year, which was, you know, really had a lot of plans. I had just been elected to be senior class president. Um, I was spending the summer in Israel traveling. And uh, that's when I was very surprisingly diagnosed with what the doctors were calling an inoperable brain tumor in my brainstem. So with that, my whole plan for my future kind of got thrown off track, I would say. Most patients in my situation would probably go see a couple of doctors and kind of make a treatment plan. In my situation, the first few doctors I saw were telling me that my brain tumor was, in fact, in my brainstem, entirely encompassed there and inoperable. So they were offering me some chemotherapy treatments, radiation treatments, but most of them didn't have a lot of faith that they would actually be able to get rid of my tumor. And I was basically given two years to it. Um, and so at that point, I did every, I hope everyone would do was I continued seeing doctors. And um, I probably got around 30 opinions um, from neuro-oncologists, neurosurgeons all around the world. Um, I was based in New York at the time, so I had access to a lot of great medical centers. Um, but most of them were telling me the same thing I had heard before. Uh, besides a one doctor in Phoenix, Arizona, that told me right off the bat, come down here, I'll take your tumor out. I'll give you a 95% chance that I could do it and, and you'll have a long life. So taking that information and then going back to the doctors in New York, I'm like, is this guy crazy? Is he, a, you know, why is he doing something? Does he have sharper knives? I mean, and everyone was telling me you know, there are always going to be somebody, a cowboy out there that could, uh, that will offer you something, but that's, you know, it shouldn't be possible because again, you have to cut through your brainstem to get there and they'll probably, if they, if they don't kill you, they'll leave you in a wheelchair for the rest of your life, you know, with a, with a feeding tube. 
um, being 25, being you know young and 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 not having responsibilities, I was willing to then just take the risk and and try to save myself. So I flew it into Arizona, had my you know brain surgery with this uh, Dr. Robert Spetzler in Phoenix, Arizona, and he was right. I mean, he succeeded. He got the whole brain tumor out. He left me not in way worse off condition than I was already. And um, that was, I think, 17 years ago. So I spent, you know, 11 days in the ICU recovering and then a long rehab process learning how to walk, talk, get back on my feet again. And it was during that rehab process um, at Rusk and NYU that I kind of realized that my whole life plan was kind of going to be different. I mean, I, I realized that what I went through, I wanted to try to help other people who might be in the same situation as me become empowered and make the best decisions that they can make on their treatments. So came up with a lot of ideas of how I could change the oncology world and the brain tumor world and decided to change my focus to public health. So I went and got my public health degree at Columbia um, and then went into work in, in, in that field. That's incredible. Um, we're so glad you're with us uh, today. And uh, obviously all the people and, and companies you helped along those last 17 years certainly have been uh, blessed by that surgeon and the fact that you didn't give up. We normally ask this question at the end of podcasts of advice you would give to current and future healthcare professionals. And we can return to that after we start talking about your foundation work and Idan. Um, but before we go into that, you know, given that you were on that side, uh, I was being a patient with a very serious condition where a lot of physicians told you there's nothing to do. You know, what advice would you give to you know, medical students, practicing nurses and doctors, et cetera, about bedside manner or anything else that really helped you and stood out uh, when you were going through that serious period of your life? It's a good question. I think from the medical side of it is not to discount the patient as a stakeholder. I mean, when you talk about healthcare, there's always like, you see places where they say, well, we're having a conference and we're bringing all the stakeholders to the table. We have pharma, we have insurance, we have industry, we have the doctors. And the main stakeholder in health is always the patient. They should be the center. So a lot of times it's like, you know, if, if a patient comes with doing their own research, I mean, maybe it's different now, but back in 2005, you know, you, people, you, you printed the internet back then, right? There's no smartphones. So and a lot of times the doctors would discount um, the research that we had done beforehand. And my family and I were doing a lot of research and we were pulling studies. And even though we didn't have a background in understanding these studies, we pulled studies and we had information about this surgeon that was doing, he had published over a hundred brainstem surgeries already. But most doctors just discounted it because they know their field and it's hard for them sometimes to understand that other people might be doing something different. So I think from that perspective is, is always, is to give the patients a little bit more benefit of doubt with what they kind of know. And if you see a patient that isn't in that point, I mean, help them understand what they should know and what they should be looking into. Absolutely. And, you know, it's definitely a focus area of ours um, on the so-called soft skills, things like shared decision-making and how to approach those conversations and, and ultimately keep putting the patient at the center. It's one reason we've been attracted to the rare disease space for so long is because when you meet a parent or a family member or a rare disease patient themselves, you know, they truly know more than the average clinician about that condition. They not only live it, but they've taken it upon themselves to, you know, read the articles, understand it, start foundations as in your case. Um, so let's transition into that, uh, an empowered patient or family member perspective. Tell us about uh, your son, Idan, and, and kind of how 
the diagnosis went, and then ultimately starting the Hyper IgM Foundation? Sure. So uh, my first son was born. He was born healthy. Went through all the newborn screening tests perfectly, reaching all his milestones for the first six months or so. Um, and everything looked normal. Um, around eight months, he started getting a little, uh, he seems fine, but he started breathing quickly. Maybe he had a, like a mild cold. Uh, we didn't notice it. My, my uh, mother-in-law noticed like, you know, he's starting to take a lot of breaths a minute and, you know, maybe we should go to the pediatrician, we, which we, you know, took him to. We went a couple of times that week, each time thinking it's just a virus, you know, he's healthy besides that. As the couple of weeks went by of going back to the doctor, his his oxygen levels fell, his breaths, you know, he was definitely taking many, many breaths per minute, struggling really to get a good breath in. And at, at that point, they rushed us to the uh, ER and, you know, started probing him and testing him and seeing, you know, assuming that it was some sort of pneumonia, you know, based on the x-rays, but they really didn't understand what it could be. And the first couple of days there, he just went to, you know, a breathing mask, and then eventually they intubated him, um, and he ended up being intubated for two full weeks, and diagnosed with uh, pneumocystis pneumonia, um, which is a very rare pneumonia. Um, it's a opportunistic infection that you would not get unless you had in a compromised immune system. So at that point, all the doctors kind of descended on us, and you know. Um, we saw infectious disease, they tested him for HIV, obviously, which, you know, he was negative. And then they started going through all the different tests for different kinds of immune deficiencies. And at that point, it was kind of like, it triggered what I like to call, I had been through this myself. And I, like you would say, I had been through this boot camp of dealing with a rare <laughs> diagnosis and trying to find an answer. So all my like skills that I had you know, developed during that time and over the years in public health, kind of jumped in. He was in the ICU for three weeks. And uh, that's when they discovered that he had no antibodies at all, never made any response to any of his uh, childhood vaccines. And they started giving him uh, IVIG, which is uh, intravenous uh, immunoglobulin dosage, and started setting up tests. And he came back uh, with a immune deficiency called CD4D ligand deficiency, which is also called X-linked hyper-IGM syndrome. It's a very rare one in a million type of uh, immune deficiency. Patients with this immune deficiency um, have defective T cells and cannot uh, communicate properly with their B cells. So they can't alert the rest of the immune system to pathogens or viruses, and they can't um, signal the B cells to produce antibody response. So if you get a vaccine, you don't make any response to it. When you get a virus, the B cells won't do anything to fight them off and won't produce antibodies. Only some of the T cells might work. So being a one in a million disease, there wasn't a lot of information out there at the time. There was uh, one page on, on the Immune Deficiency Foundation's website, uh, which is a great organization, but focuses more on the more common uh, immune deficiencies out there. Um, and most doctors you meet would never have heard of hyper IgM syndrome. Maybe they took, maybe it was on a pop quiz during their immunology class, uh, the one immunology class they take it in, in medical school. And so that's when we started, started, you know, to get into crisis mode. Our son was, uh, I mean, being immune compromised, we really couldn't be around people. We kind of like sheltered in place back in 2013 before that was even a, a term. 
uh, everyone coming over, we put masks on them, they changed their outfits, you know, we, I was wearing a mask every time I felt a scratchy throat back in, you know, 2013. So we kind of learned to be aware of germs and all of those things early on. And um, with hyperagent syndrome, the only known possible treatment that could be a curative treatment is uh, bone marrow transplant. So that's kind of like what we knew we needed to do. And then the question for us was, what type of transplant, what type of chemotherapy protocol and where we would do it. So similar to with my situation, we started consulting dozens of centers and going around the, the world and the country, um, trying to find the best treatment that we can for it. Along the way, this is kind of reason to the foundation work that we've been doing. Along the way, we got a lot of attention from a fundraiser that we were doing at the time to raise funds to cover his treatments because um, the insurance company had denied uh, his IVIG treatments and were denying also uh, the transplant at the beginning. So we were raising funds and that's kind of when we got a lot of news attention. And that led to patients around the world reaching out to us saying, oh, we were always told, you know, we would never hear about another patient with this disease. And then we saw the article or the news uh, on the news about you. And so we realized that there's a community here that, that could be built. And we were probably situated in the best possible place to build that community. Absolutely. I mean, what a, what a remarkable kind of journey you guys have been through. How, how is he doing now? How old is he? And can you tell us a bit about that? And then obviously I have a ton of questions about the foundation work and, and whatnot. So Idan is 10 years old now. He uh, is doing amazing. So he had uh, transplant back in 2013 when he was 14 months, which unfortunately uh, failed. Uh, we went out to, we, we, after doing a lot of research, we chose uh, to transplant him, even though we lived in New York at Seattle Children's Hospital. And the main reason is when you're going to do a bone marrow transplant or stem cell transplant, you need to get a high dose chemotherapy to kind of wipe out the organ that you're transplanting, which in this case is the bone marrow. There's no way of getting all the bone marrow out of your body besides giving chemotherapy and immune suppressants. Um, and Seattle had a protocol that nobody else in the country has, and they still has, have a protocol that no one else has, which is a type of chemotherapy called triosulfin, which is just as effective in wiping out the bone marrow, but less toxic for the rest of the body which is why uh, one of the reasons we chose uh, Seattle. Fortunately, his first transplant failed um, and it took us a few years to kind of realize that we needed to do it again because his hyper-IGM basically came back. And then he was transplanted again in 2016, right before he turned four. And it was a success. And he's been living basically disease-free for the last five years off all medication, off all infusions, going to school, really normal life. I mean, he spent the summer at a horse camp, like shoveling manure and <laughs> tending to goats and animals and horses. And so we're not worried about him at all anymore. That's amazing. And and so similarly uh, throughout the COVID pandemic, has it been uh, relatively normal at, at your household? So that's a great question. So at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, we kind of, you know, we had just spent several years trying to stop curling our hands and stop being, you know, so neurotic about germs. And then all of a sudden it was like a, a PTSD flashback to that world. So we went and became, you know, probably more neurotic than other families at, at first. I think we're one of the few families out there that have not had COVID in the last two and a half years. So maybe everything we've been, we've been doing, but he's been vaccinated. I mean, he's unmasked now in camp. We're not worried about it. We were told by, I mean, at first going through a bone marrow transplant, it means a lot of, you know, chemotherapy and poisons on the body. So we wondered how well he would do, but we were assured by his medical team that he would do just as well as any other kid his age. 
So we weren't concerned about him, you know, more than the than the average, which is very different in the community with hypergym because they are very concerned because they all are all immune compromised unless they've had a you know a successful bone marrow transplant. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And actually, can you talk to us a bit about the bone marrow transplant too? We we partner with an organization called Donor Alliance and recently had them on the podcast about you know, bone and soft tissue transplantation. Um, and one of the main takeaways from that is for our audience for uh, not only to sign up themselves to be organ donors and for the registries, but then also to have those consultations with patients as well. And, you know, we also had people like KX Jang, who runs Facebook or Meta's health platform, and they've done a ton of blood donor drives and other drives to raise awareness, which is one of the things that happens, but I haven't heard of a bone marrow drive in, in a while. So um, can you tell us about the process of getting that, how you got matched, uh, any of that stuff? I mean, I would say that being a bone marrow or stem cell donor is probably one of the most amazing things you could do. And it doesn't take a lot on your end. Many of us get swabbed in college or at some event that we go to, and we never think about it again. Uh, I know I was swabbed in grad school, and I never really put much thought into it until my son needed a donor. We were very lucky that my son's HLA typing was common enough, I guess, that I guess because my wife and I have the same kind of genetic background, both Ashkenazi Jews from the same region in Europe, that um, we had a, uh, a decent amount of donor options when we were choosing and they chose the best optimal donor for the first transplant and then they switched to a different donor for the second transplant but i would say that there are a lot of patients out there that do not have that access anytime there's a patient that any kind of mixed race or even just mixed ethnic backgrounds it'd be much harder to find a, a donor match we were very fortunate and actually we we got to meet um my son's donor a couple of years after his tra successful transplant, uh, we had asked to meet him because he was doing well. It was two years post-transplant. And then the registry, which was the gift of life registry that he was found through, said, oh, you know what? We have a perfect thing. We're going to have you guys meet him at our event. And we went to an event in 2018, I, I think it was. It was a 500-person gala. And they had a video about Idan and his story. And then we got to meet his donor, Alex on stage in front of 500 people, which was a, a very big emotional um, journey for us, but it was very special. And, you know, Alex was an amazing, you know, guy. He, he registered when he was in college, kind of forgot about it. And when they reached out to him and said, hey, you could save a sick kid, sick four-year-old that needs, you know, your, your, your bone marrow, he jumped in it right away. And, and it was a very easy process for him because they could take out stem cells now. So you just sit in the hospital, you donate blood for six hours, you get the blood back, they just take your stem cells in the end. Um, and then they shipped him to Seattle and, you know, he saved our son's life. And now they kind of share a special bond and we've kept in touch with him since. That's incredible. Yeah. We love, love their, hearing those stories. And we, you know, if there's any recording that we'd love to, love to share them in the show notes. Oh, sure. So going into the foundation's work, uh, you know, this is a one in a million type condition. There's 8 billion people in the world. So really only 8,000 people. So it's any rare conditions are less than 200,000 people. That's the, the criteria. This is even more rare than the average rare condition, it seems. Um, tell us about the foundation. How do you, you know, what are the types of activities you've been working on and any kind of highlights or things you, you're, you're very proud of the foundation having accomplished since you started it? I mean, we're one of what they call an ultra rare condition. Um, there's only probably a few hypergems born every year in, in the U.S., um, we started off with the support group, um, just organizing families together, kind of connecting them because we realized that every time another patient with this one in a million disease that was told that he would never meet another family with disease unless it's in their family and they know their cousin has it, 
once you brought them together, so much more information was being shared and empowering patients to make the better decision. And that's when I realized that we could do so much more. I had an extensive background in healthcare and also uh, sitting on a board of a national foundation for 10 years um, in the brain tumor world. So I kind of knew how uh, charities would work. And then my wife, Amanda, is a healthcare attorney. So we were really situated in the best possible place to start this foundation for these families. Um, so we founded in 2015 with the goal of connecting families together and also uh, raising funds to help um, research and hopefully cure this disease. So besides connecting families and, and helping new families all around the world kind of understand it when they're first diagnosed, we, we connect them with the patient liaison, we have a call with them. Um, we connect them with the support group. We just really help them understand this diagnosis. And a lot, most of them are being diagnosed kind of out of the blue. The, you know, their they're, they're son like ours would be totally healthy and then all of a sudden get sick and, you know, get this rare diagnosis and not knowing really how to process it. Um, so we created a website. We put a lot of information that we simplified for our patients, kind of like what you do with osmosis. And I know that we connected because you made a great video on hyper-IgM syndrome, which we've shared with all our patients, which is amazing. Um, and so we help them in that aspect. We also help them connect to the best care. So if there are patients in India or, or any place really that might not have the best options, we'll connect them with families. I mean, we've had families in, in Turkey that we've connected to, in Australia that we've connected because they haven't had the best option. And we'll connect them to a, a expert in the UK that they could talk to. And then he'll talk to their doctors and kind of make a treatment plan. And We've had patients all over the world kind of change their treatment plan based on the connections that we've made for them with, with experts in the field. And we've also been raising research funding every year, um, giving uh, grants to hospitals all around the world that will focus on understanding hyperagian better. But um, the most the things that we're most excited about for us is the gene editing and uh, gene therapy options that might come into play. So we don't have a treatment now. The only thing that we have now is kind of prophylaxis care, which is IVIG treatment, and our patients could stay in that for life, but the median age is still 24, unfortunately. So most do not make it past the third decade of life. Um, or they, if they have a match and they're healthy enough, they might have a bone marrow transplant, but the survival rate with the bone marrow transplant is also not amazing. I mean, you're rolling the die, there's a 10 to 15% mortality rate with any transplants. And besides that, the success rates aren't always that amazing. So the treatment options with the gene editing um, would be amazing. And there's a couple of centers around the world that have been working on this and we've been helping both fund them and also uh, get them patient volunteers to be part of their research. That's incredible. And actually that's a, yeah, that's exactly how we got connected was uh, I was following, you know, where osmosis videos are being shared. And I noticed a lot of traffic on your, from your Facebook page, the hyper IGM foundation and reached out to you because we had just started working with rare disease foundations like the alpha one antitrypsin deficiency foundation. And, uh, you were very generous to give us a lot of feedback on the video. We improved the video and then very generous with your network. You reconnected me to Nord who I had met first at a conference, but then you knew them very personally the National Organization for Rare Disorders, uh, as well as uh, other foundations. So we appreciate kind of the role you've played personally in helping osmosis get mm -hmm. bigger into the rare disease space. Um, so on that topic, real quick up awareness, right? So once you got the news articles, there was raising money for the, for the foundation, for Idan, you started hearing from all these patients and family members who had this condition. And that's where, you know, you start getting the numbers you need for not only raising money, but also for clinical trials uh, and getting more interest. 
you know, this is something we really want to do at scale for many patient foundations as well. Nord's 40th anniversary and the anniversary of the Orphan Drug Act is coming out next year. And I'm just curious if you found that, uh, you know, working with other foundations, working with uh, maybe there's hyper IGM groups in other countries, is it very collaborative? Like, how do you feel the ecosystem has evolved since you started the foundation yourself? So when we started it, I mean, there wasn't anything with hyper IGM out there. Um, Later on, there was an Australian mom that started a uh, support group for Australia, and we kind of reached out to her right away and, and wanted to bring her together with us. So we, you know, we gave her, she's like our patient liaison in Australia, and we've kind of joined the support groups together because with such a rare disease, you want to have one place. But I've made it a point to be active in the rare disease community, um, going to conferences, sometimes speaking at conferences, you know, you need to make sure you always have a seat at the table so that you're there when you're meeting. I mean, so many times I've gone to a conference, if it's Nord Conference or Global Genes, and I've met a doctor there that I did not know was focused or researching something that, that was relevant to what we are doing. And that's kind of how it, how it developed. Another aspect is that and make it a point to also go to the medical conferences. So I'm not a doctor, but you know I have a background in public health. And so I've joined as a member, I go to their conferences and not just as like an exhibitor, but I'm there to be at the discussions, be at the sessions, talk to doctors. And that's kind of expanded that network and led to a lot of the researchers that we end up meeting and focus on. Just by being at these conferences, I've connected with doctors that I would have never known and, and then able to possibly help their research forward. So that's been really great. That's incredible. And and definitely echoes some of the other folks we've had on. Like we had Philippe Pachter, who I, I know we tagged you on on his interview with Pierre Robon. He speaks at his conferences and and connected me to people like Nick Sarreau, who I'm sure you know, and Durain Wong Reader. It's a, a very interesting how similar a lot of these journeys have been, though the conditions are so different and the circumstances tend to be very different as to when people are diagnosed and you know, but there are core themes that I think uh, we'd like to get across to our learners and anyone who's interested in the space. Um, I know we're coming up in time. I want to be respectful of yours. You know, what what advice would you give more generally to our audience about working with rare disease patients and family members? How can they be most helpful both to you all personally, the Hyper IGM Foundation, and then the community as a whole, in your opinion? I think for medical students and people that are, you know, going through their, their training, getting involved with any kind of patient organization that is possibly connected to the passion of your, you know, whatever you're planning on specializing in would be an amazing benefit because it would allow you to see a different perspective that's not just in the exam room and not just kind of like in the books that you're reading. One of Edan's immunologists from Seattle sits on our board and, and we become very close friends. And I think that it definitely helps him in his own practice as an immunologist to be connected to these patients and, and kind of know their stories from a different side than just the white coat and, you know, the patient in an exam room. Or just getting involved with any of the rare disease organizations. I'm part of a group called the Primary Immune Deficiency Treatment Consortium, which is mostly hospitals and research centers that all um, treat immune deficiencies, but they have the patient advocacy groups as part of it. So we're on their monthly calls where they're talking about their research trials and so on. We have our own monthly calls um, and they, a lot of the physicians then participate in what we're doing and help kind of collaborate on the research projects we're doing. So I would say get involved with any kind of re, uh, patient organization to kind of give you that perspective. Definitely. I love that. And Nord, they have a woman there who's wonderful. Her name's Tiffany Sammons and her role is to help 
develop rare disease chapters at medical schools. Um, and, you know, some of these med students, like people like David Fagenbaum, who's now a professor at Penn, I'm sure you know him, yeah. Chase My Cure. He's um, great. He, you know, is a med student who like got very involved because he had his own condition, Castleman syndrome. And so the more helpful I think osmosis can be in helping Tiffany and others set up these chapters at these schools, it, it's very meaningful. I think, I mean, honestly, it's some of the most motivating work for me personally, you know, in the last decade or so of osmosis, because the gratitude, the heroic stories of these rare disease patients and family members like yourself and Amanda and Idan is palpable. Uh, and, you know, we would like to play a, a small part. Uh, we want to expand upon that. Um, what other topics would you like, you know, that I haven't asked you about, would you like to cover uh, any other final words on, on your family story on hyper IgM, the space as a whole? Uh, and then if not, I'm also curious, kind of, you're more than a rare disease patient yourself and a parent of, of a rare disease child. Um, you know, what are the other things that kind of keep you busy? Are you still consulting for healthcare companies? Are you doing public health work? Or is this kind of a full-time job for you right now? I'm focused now really almost full-time on the Hyperagian Foundation and just parenting, which parenting in itself is, a, is it should be full-time always. Um, but when the kids are in school, you, you have time. So I, I'm focused on, you know, helping our community and, and really trying to grow this organization to, you know, a situation where possibly I could step back and it runs without, um, that would be um, ideal. I could still play a part, but I could, it would be large enough that it would run also without my influence, essentially. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's, that'd be ideal to keep growing, not, not because, you know, there's more and more people joining the foundation personally, but uh, hopefully some, some organizations that are making breakthroughs. And one last thing, I'm, the hope is with any of these rare conditions that the research that goes under them elucidates some pathways or leads to a novel therapy that has even broader applications to anyone with, say, other immune disorders like, you know, multiple sclerosis or other things like that. Any last words on maybe that potential, given how much you know about the research on hyper-IgM? So I know from discussions with uh, the researcher out in UCLA that is focused on gene editing for excellent hyper-IgM, she feels that the work that she's doing, and hopefully does lead to a clinical trial um, with a CRISPR technique that would edit the gene and allow you to have full, you know, functioning immune system because it's so specific and, and because it's like a specific gene that, that, you know, is not working properly and you could fix it. She feels that if they're successful there, it would expand to other types of um, diseases because it's kind of like starting small with a specific one, but if they're able to do it well with that one and it turns on and it works well and it's regulated, then they would be able to expand to other ones. So I think that the funding that she got was, you know, because it's kind of like a good trial um, on the science. Let's hope that comes to pass. It's going to be very exciting to yeah. see what happens over the next decade or so. Um, so Akiva, thank you so much, not only for taking the time to be with us on the podcast today, but more importantly, for the work that you've done, you know, for the rare disease space and for osmosis and connecting us to the space. Thank you. And with that, I'm Shivivani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.